From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. All right, Zach. So last Monday without Joanna. Uh-huh. So, you know, let me let me have it. What have you been drinking that we, you know, we don't need Joanna to know about? You know, like, <laughs> her, like, you know man, this is, when we bought, this is when we popped the good bottles, Joanna. <laughs> well, you know, so it's funny. I, I had a, a – I don't know if Joanna would be jealous of this or not. I really don't know her feelings about this. But, uh, <laughs> but I had a, a some friends over and some family over uh, this past weekend for – what I called Zinsanity. So I had a bunch of bottles of I saw that. sample bottles of Zinfandel that I wanted to open. And the problem for me, and I'm sure this occurs occasionally to you and maybe to a few of our listeners, I apologize for those of you who are going to hear me say this and be like, you asshole, how dare you? But like when you get sent a lot of sample bottles of wine, it's like weird to me because I just cannot. Some people, maybe some, some people, some journalists, whatever, can open bottles and drink a little bit of it and just not sweat pouring it out. Yeah. I feel really bad about it, especially with quality wine. I mean, I get sent some samples where I'm not unhappy to pour it out after I've tasted it. But yeah. most of the stuff I get sent, for the most part, is good. And I hate opening bottles and letting a lot of it go to waste. And, you know, they don't, there are ways you can save wine. But I honestly, like, I'm not going to make my own vinegar like some no. people do that. I don't use enough vinegar in the first place in my day to day. You're not I'm doing a reduction. Like, yeah. And I do that from time to Syrups. time. So like, do I really want like a, a thick, like do I need a bunch of demi glass all the time? Not really. So the point is like, I had all these Zinfandel bottles that I wanted to open. I wanted to ha- taste them side by side. Cause that was kind of the point. And so I invited some people over and opened these bottles of Zin, a lot of which came from Ridge, but not exclusively. And I just, I'm a big fan of Zinfandel. I think I've, I've kind of come all the way around to being comfortable admitting that I think there are, there's a lot of sadly, like kind of not good Zen out there. There's a lot of like mm-hmm. grocery store, inexpensive bulk juice Zen, which is like whatever, but the stuff that's made by quality producers from some of these old vineyards in California is really tasty. And it's just like this unique wine in uh, not just the American wine landscape, but really the global wine landscape. And that was really fun um, to see, especially in the case of the different bottles from Ridge, you know, same winemaking, same winemaker, but because these vineyards are very different, different parts of California, different blend of varieties planted in the vineyard. Because again, none of these are like, yeah. well, most of these are not 100% Zinfandel vineyards. It was really cool. So a fun day. I also made my first ever proper like meat and cheese board, which also got documented on Instagram for those of you who care. I saw that too, Zach. Uh, and I gotta say, I always been one of those people who looked at people like doing the boards and I was like, really, but I had an alarming amount of fun doing it. So it may happen again. How about you, Adam? What you been drinking? So I got to have like my first work dinner recently Mm. in a while. Uh, so Naomi was very kind to let me come home late. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to Coloman, which is a new restaurant here in New York. And first of all, the food is just fucking killer marcus glocker is the chef he was formerly the chef at batard uh in tribeca but it's actually only a block away from our office it's a little dangerous because they've opened for lunch um but they do like french austrian okay and the food was amazing and then just the the wine list is really amazing and the beverage director katja she just does an incredible job of curating a, a mo- mostly french and austrian focused list um and the wines that we, we had were great you know, but I think the the standout was that at the end of the meal, she came over and was like, "Can I bring you over like a, a glass of something to like Josh and I and our dinner companion?" And we were like, "Sure." You know, we had already thought about ordering like Calvados or something because 
you know, not something I normally order. And Josh was like, oh, let's get Calvados to end the meal. And then she brought over instead uh, a 1978 Madeira. Ooh. And I don't have a lot of Madeira. And you and everyone was, else. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, wow, this is really great. Like, this is really great. And it's really cool to think you're drinking something that's from before I was born. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just really cool. And I think that that's the thing with some of these fortified wines that you're able to do that you, you get to have these experiences that are, are really hard to come by with just traditional wine, right? They just are. Um, drinking something from a year that is that old and wine is, is difficult for the lay person and also usually quite expensive if you can find something that isn't dead. And yeah, I was gonna say that's the other thing is a much bigger chance than uh, fortified spirit like they, they hold up much better than table wine yeah and i you know i just thought it was such a cool experience and um so that was thrilling um but then otherwise you know just kind of still doing my thing man i'm <laughs> looking forward to to uh <laughs> to, to having more nights out i've got a big night out coming this week as well so i'll get to talk about that uh on, uh, on next monday's show excellent joanna um, will be back just in time to hear about it yeah, she she just can't wait. Uh, so last week we published an article that is around a subject that we talked about a bunch in the office, and you and I thought it'd be fun to have a, the conversation separately on the podcast, and that is whether or not we'll ever actually see premium gin. Uh, and by premium, we mean, you know, like a, a luxury gin, a gin that is sort of equivalent to some of these l- other, you know, luxury products in in other spirits, whether it's 1942 in tequila or Pappy in bourbon, uh, you know, the Macallan, I think you would say in scotch, uh, you know, brands like that. And the reason we're asking this question is be- a Grey Goose in vodka or Belvedere or things like that, right? Yeah. And the reason we're asking this question is because gin seems to be this liquid that is so beloved by the bar community is so beloved by cocktail enthusiasts yet has never really had a luxury product of its own. Right. It, it, there's a lot of premium gins, right? Monkey 47, Tanqueray yeah. 10, uh, you know, et cetera. But there are, and we've written about a bunch and we've done tons of tastings, but, but there's, there's not like a gin that people seem to like, want to have allocated or seek out or say like if if you drink this gin you're rich you know or or you're you know you're a baller you don't see that and and the question kind of is why Mm -hmm. so i don't know zach what do you think of when you think of luxury gin and is it ever possible yeah i mean i think there's sort of the this is like a weird this is like the mirror image version of a little bit what we talked about on the friday episode as regards the craft cocktails right because we talked about there how Tequila, despite its prominence, is sort of underrepresented, at least in terms of number of tequila cocktails. And gin is greatly overrepresented in terms of the number of gin cocktails that are in the classic canon. And I think it's this, you know, it's this sort of this is the other side of that coin, right? Where tequila, especially now, is killing it in the premium setting, in the luxury setting in particular, and in these in these areas that the piece touches on, you know, in nightclubs and stuff like that. And gin just isn't. And I think the the reason for it is really interesting to me. So so one of them is that tequila and some of these other things, you know, the the vodka, sometimes your brown spirits like bourbon or scotch, and then obviously champagne, which is also mentioned in here, even though obviously it's not a spirit, are things that like you don't need mixers to go with. You can just sort of get the bottle, put it on the the table, and like people can just drink it, and that's kind of what they want to do. And yeah, people but... don't generally like to do shots of gin. I don't blame them. I don't like to do shots of gin either. 
I think what's funny to me is you hear a lot of the same like, oh, I had a bad experience with gin when I was young and I'll never drink it again. And people used to say that about tequila. And somehow, I'm not sure how, we'll talk about it. People got over that with tequila. They have not gotten over it with gin. Right. And that means that for gin to fit in in any setting, it almost always has to be mixed in some fashion. So some of it is that just in these settings, right, in the nightclub setting and things like that, anything that has to be mixed, I think, is going to suffer by comparison to something that just can be consumed straight. It's more mm-hmm. work. People are not in these spaces either as guests or to some extent as the staff to like put in a lot of work into making cocktails. That's why one of the reasons why bottle service is a thing, right? Like you don't have to Mm -hmm. wait on a bartender to make you a drink. And it's also because I think people's associations with gin, even the the high end gins that do exist, like monkey 47 and stuff like that are okay, but I'm going to craft it into this beautiful martini or this exceptional gin and tonic or whatever my other cocktail of choice is. It's not like I'm going to enjoy this spirit on its own. And in that regard, gin is really something of a anomaly in this, in the world of spirits. I mean, maybe things like, like white rum and stuff kind of fit in there. Also not something that people are, unless you're doing like shots of overproof rum, people but you could really, mix it with Coke. Yeah. You know, like, and in the club, someone will bring you Coke. But that's the thing, right? Gin also doesn't play great with most of those classic mixers with obviously the exception of tonic and soda. But, you know, I don't know. It's just sort of like, I think the other piece of it, and it's touched on in in, uh, Jessica's piece here, is that gin, gin is so dominated by these brands that are so ubiquitous, right? Like the really big producers. And even their attempts to look, pardon me, even their attempts to launch luxury versions, right? Your your tequila, I'm sorry, your tequila, your Tanqueray tens, yeah, your your you know Bombay sapphires, etc. Those are things that like they just don't come across as baller bottles. And you know why it is? It's because you can get like minis of them and stuff like that, yeah. right? Like they're just too available. And I think to be, I mean, maybe that's not true with vodka. I don't know. None of this makes a none of this is super totally consistent. Some of it is just people's preconceived notions about the spirit, but like it makes sense to me. It doesn't surprise me in a way. So here's my thoughts. Please. I think, I think first of all, if you're going to make a luxury gin, it automatically doesn't become a luxury gin. It becomes a super premium gin because it's, it, you're making the greatest martini ingredient you can make. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, at the end of the day, like what you're saying is very true. Like Tanqueray 10, I would argue makes one of the best martinis you can have like in in a consistent you can find it everywhere that's why it always does so well in our ratings monkey 47 the same bombay sapphire makes great martinis like if you're going to have a super premium gin it is to make a martini if you're going to have a premium gin it's to make a gin and tonic it's to make you know some gimlets whatever right like that's number one number two i think that gin suffers very much so from its baggage of being like a your grandma's drink, right? Like you think people who drank gin straight is like an old woman, <laughs> like was an alcoholic, basically. Like there's a little bit of that bias, or maybe you tried it when you were sneaking liquor from the parents' liquor cabinet, as we talked about, right? Um, it's funny, like as a as a funny little anecdote here. I remember there was a gin that got brought to our office a few years ago, and it was an Italian entrepreneur, actually based in Piedmont who was going to create, he thought, a super premium luxury gin. And he had this like crazy packaging, this, you know, 
think the same people who design who like design the design firm that's connected to like Ferrari design the packaging right like super high end and he was like oh they're going to drink it straight and shoot it and I know that that brand doesn't exist anymore today yeah. right like it's just good job man uh like it, because I think that's that show that was very much proof of like a lack of understanding of the market and also that just no one does you know is is interested and I think the other reason is because if you look at the brands that become super premium for the most part to become luxury, they are aged in wood. Yeah. And if you age gin in wood, it becomes a different product. Yeah. Comple- it's not gin, right? You're basically making a botanical whiskey. Yeah. And I think vodka is its own thing. I think vodka is able to be super premium because in that regard, it's like people want it to have zero taste and the clean, you know, the less it tastes like anything, the, the more, the higher end it's, it's believed to be. Although as we see now, like vodka is having its own sort of issues with, with its place in the world, but every other like luxury spirit is aged in wood. Yeah. And now you have a few tequilas because I think of just the immense popularity of tequila that are able to be luxury tequilas that are Blanco. Mm-hmm. But you know, let's not forget, like, 42 is aged in wood. Yeah. You know, uh, Classe Azul is aged in wood. Like, some of these originals, all of the whiskeys, obviously, are all of the scotches, cognac, the super high-end pre- premium rums. They're all aged in wood. And I think that that's one of the biggest issues here, that you just can't do that with gin. And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for this, like, you know, because what wood does is it, like, it adds that vanilla flavor. It softens and smooths out the liquid. Like it allows for this quaffability that makes you feel like you could be wearing a smoking jacket and talking about like, you know, all of your investments. And you just, you know, you don't do that with gin. Instead, when you talk about your investments with gin, you have it in a delicious martini. But then the actual like star of the show there is the glass and the martini. And that's why we're seeing all these amazing martinis around the world, you know, country right now with caviar bumps and shit like that, because there is a premium aspect to the martini. It's just that no one gives a shit about the gin because the gin bottle's not on the table. Yeah. Well, and I think the other piece of this, and this is just sort of me being a little flip, but the other part is like, do you really love juniper? Like that's the other piece of it. It's like (laughs) juniper is the central flavor in gin. And like, who wants a, big overdose of juniper like we're not out here pushing like juniper flavored other stuff like i get why it's a part of gin's profile and you know occasional guest host tim mccurdy and i might differ on our opinions of you know the gins that are being made now that are less juniper forward i believe that if any gin for the most part has a chance at being a premium product or a luxury product it's going to be probably one that's less juniper forward because that style is just like it's just it's great in the right setting. It's great in cocktails, but it's not great on its own. And again, to come back to this specific part of the market, yeah, I don't think you can really do it. The other piece is, okay, now Tim's really going to get pissed at me. The other thing about this is like, maybe we don't think the English are that cool. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, except here's the thing. Scotch is premium. But I guess not, I didn't say the Scottish. I said, and so maybe well, it won't make a, Tim. A, actually, that'll make Tim happy. Yeah, Tim is Scottish. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I, I mean, uh, so he'll agree 100%. It has baggage. It has baggage. It has baggage. And it's just kind of like, I mean, you talked about like the grandma and stuff. I just think it kind of has a like, yeah, it's like a, it, it, no one denies gin's importance. And, and yeah. again, we both love gin. We're not trying to shit talk gin here, please. But I think when you talk about building mystique, there's, there's, it's easier in a way to build mystique around tequila right there's an exoticism fair or not that yep. is associated with tequila. no it's true i think it's easier to build mystique around um even vodka right i mean again current 
perceptions around Eastern European nations at the moment, like vodka has always had a little bit more of an exotic vibe to it, even if we don't think of like that part of the world as exotic exactly, but it's been different. And I I think probably, especially during the cold war, there was a certain like faint tinge of like uh, you're being, you're being a little subversive by liking a spirit Mm -hmm. that's so associated with, you know, the Eastern Mm Bloc and all that. And champagne, obviously, you know, deeply associated with the French, you know, I think there's not, you know, I don't think we're seeing a lot of like uh, premium Amaro in bars, but honestly that or in uh, nightclubs, but that would be less surprising to me in a way than like premium gin. Like, I think there's just, it's harder for me to see, you know, you need that kind of, you either need the person or, or, you know, the, the instance that's putting gin in that context, or you need the kind of associated cultural coolness and, and sophistication and i just think like we're not there with the uk right now like that's just not how people in this country view i don't think i mean like i'm not a person who's like big into the monarchy so i don't give a shit about that maybe with the recent coronation and stuff people are all about the (laughs) no i don't think right now but yeah i don't i don't think so either so to me it's kind of like you know it's like gin can't escape its associations with England and we like England just fine, but I don't think we think of it as particularly cool with some rare exceptions. Look, I think too, the other thing that gin sort of suffers from is, you know, where there are, you have both trade and consumers who find brands in each category that they champion and think are cool and talk a lot about, right? So, you know, we've, we talked about this recently with tequila, like yeah. consumers love 42 consumers love, you know, uh, some of these other really big brands trade loves Fortaleza trade loves Don Fuyano. Right. Exactly. But like they're, they're all expensive tequilas, but like trade has one consumers have another, you know, you look at sort of even in vodka, right. There's consumers that love Belvedere or Grey Goose. I think there are some trade do as well, but not, you know, then there's trade that like, are like, no, 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 no. You know, I really love Chopin because it's still family owned and they make it, you know, like there's a Chopin vodka at um, this bar in New York, Veronica. That's like, they're super, super premium vodka made for making vodka martinis. And, you know, they're getting away with selling a vodka martini for, you know, 30, 40 bucks, yeah. you know? So like, so that, that does exist and the trade love it, right? Cause it's a very well-made vodka. Um, but I would say that like with gin, the brands that become cool are actually brands that are cool with trade. And often when trade like a brand, especially in gin, it's affordable. For example, no one else can see this, but this is one, this is the first time we've actually ever recorded a podcast with video, with video. And I'm wearing a forged gin t-shirt today. Yeah. I know. And <laughs> forged gin is a cool fucking gin and it's also under $20. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And trade love it because it makes a really, it's, it's a consistent gin that goes so well. in so many classic gin cocktails that it's this workhorse for them that they can easily recommend and they can easily use and can deliver the margins they need in all the different cocktails. And that's why they like it and it builds beautiful drinks, but it's not a luxury gin. It's a solid quality gin that you are smart for ordering. It's yeah. like kettle one, not kettle one. It's like Tito's, right? It's yeah. like you're smart for getting this. And that I think gin has a lot of that. There's a lot of you're smart for, for ordering this gin. Even like Tanqueray 10, while it's a super premium gin, if you're someone that orders it, if that's your call for your gin martini, 
someone says, well, why, why is Tank Ray 10? Well, did you know that Tank Ray 10 was 100% developed as a martini gin and yeah. that it has botanicals on top of the juniper that go with specifically with the classically made martini with a lemon twist? And that's why I order Tank Ray 10, right? It's, that's, that's why people get into gin. It's not like, oh, yeah, because it's baller and like Diddy drinks it. <laughs> it's just yeah. not what people do. Or even just because it tastes great on its own, right? I mean, here we yeah. come back to the central piece of gin's dilemma which maybe isn't even really a dilemma it's just a place where there's going to be this aspect of drinks culture where gin doesn't really fit in because we talk about it you know talk about with fords you talk about with something that's you know similarly beloved but but higher end like sipsmith or again that aforementioned monkey 47 or roku or all these other things that are that are popular you know the botanist etc all these are designed around cocktails first and foremost they're designed to shine in a martini in a gin and tonic or in other gin cocktails of which there are many there. No, no one, as I'm aware, is designing their gin as a standalone, just drink this neat, you know, by itself. Like that is not gin's place. And therefore it means that parts of the drinking culture, parts of drinks spaces are just a little out of bounds for it. And like, I don't think it's a problem for gin. Exactly. I think it's just a, a reality for gin. So I don't know. I, I, but this is another one where I feel like this is a great spot for if those of you listening have feedback for us. You know, Adam and I are not. I don't. I, I'm not speaking out of turn to say neither of us are nightclub people at the moment. Right. <laughs> um, maybe ever. So you know, if you're seeing different things, or or if you have experienced this, uh, especially in those settings or in those really kind of luxury settings, uh, podcast at vinepair.com. Shoot us an email. Get a hold of us on social media. Like, let us know what you're thinking. It's always, again, really, really rewarding for us to to hear from all of you. And because sometimes you agree and sometimes you disagree in ways that lead us to fascinating co- topics of conversation. Absolutely, hit us up. Let us know. Are we gonna ever see a luxury gin? Did you create it? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe send us samples. Did. We'll drink it. You know? Send us samples and like, and then if you send it to us, don't tell us use this in a martini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll drink right. it. We'll drink it straight on the podcast. I promise. Yeah, I, I promise. And uh, Zach, I'll, I'll see you back here on Friday with Joanna, and then I won't have to say for like the seventh time, Joanna's coming back because she'll just be back. Adam, I say this for, with all my heart. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.